Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. And Willow Walsh, and you're listening to... Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories, and we pair them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Organic Juice Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsjuicecafe.com. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's Invisible Project Initiative, so listen up. Our two stories today are Nowhere to Go and Time to Change. To give you the rundown of things, we'll play two stories and we'll pause in between to have a conversation about the storyteller's experience. And today we wanted to share with you again, since we're pulling more stories from the Invisible Project, a little bit about that initiative. Um, The Welcome Project, which is uh, uh, like an umbrella term for all of our story collection, um, has three different initiatives. One is like a community or a campus collection. Another one is the Invisible Project. And the fourth one is Flight Paths, which you heard a couple of different stories from Flight Paths if you've been listening to our radio show from the beginning, which has to do with our uh, oral history of Northwest Indiana. Um, the uh, Invisible Project initiative was launched in 2015 when we were approached by the Porter County Coalition for Affordable Housing Housing Opportunities, Gabriel's Horn, and Dayspring Women's Center, they were interested in us helping them collect stories of what homelessness looks like in Porter County. And uh, Willa, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the mission statements for those organizations? Yeah, so Housing Opportunities is a nonprofit that resolves and prevents homelessness for adults, children, and seniors in Porter and LaPorte County. Uh, Gabriel's Horn helps homeless women and children rebuild their lives and independence with dignity by providing shelter, education, counseling, and referrals to community connections. Uh, Dayspring Women's Center is a day center in Valparaiso serving women who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless by providing education, counseling, and resources. So um, the nonprofit organizations, after they approached us, uh, Liz Werfel, who's also a co-director for the Welcome Project and teaches the art department at Valparaiso University, um, the, the, the team wanted to do something a little bit different than just host the stories on our website, which is what we typically will do. And so we partnered with the Porter County Museum here in Valparaiso and Professor Yo Yun An's uh, graphic design course at the university. And her um, graduate digital media students provided the infographics And then Porter County Museum staff helped create, um, design and create a mobile exhibit that hosted both the infographics as well as the stories. And that mobile exhibit toured Porter County, um, going to at least 20 places, if not more than that, before it landed back at Housing Opportunities, um, where they have been still using some of the materials for fundraising. So you can't find or see the mobile exhibit anymore, but the Invisible Project stories are still on our website, which is welcomeproject, all one word, .valpo.edu, and you can search that by a tag or a category, the Invisible Project. Um, So without further ado, Uh, our first storyteller today talks about one resident's experience of battling addiction and homelessness in Northwest Indiana. This is Nowhere to Go. When I would see a homeless person, I didn't see myself as somebody standing around a 
a garbage bin with a fire coming out of it or sleeping under the bridge. Um, Because I've seen that. Um, I didn't consider myself that kind of a person. When you have an addiction, it pulls you. It takes you. It controls you. Um, My mom used to even say, how come you can't just stop? How come you can't just stop? I don't understand. Because you're not addicted to it. That thing is what you turn to all the time, no matter what. Something makes you mad. Something doesn't go your way. Something doesn't get... So anything, then that's what you turn to to escape, to go on cloud nine, and not to worry about it. You feel better when when you don't have nothing, no cares anymore. But in all reality, once that's done and over with, there's problems still there. My ex-husband and I, when we met, we met in a bar. And we drank for two years straight. We were planning on getting married and I ended up pregnant. So we went ahead, you know, with the wedding. And uh, I got sober and we then met each other we'd, I remember we'd go out to eat and wouldn't say a word to one another we didn't have conversation we didn't have nothing in common and I just wasn't ready to settle down I guess so like I'd go bowling I'd be on a bowling lead and stay till two three o'clock in the morning and why he would be there at home with our son and we eventually moved in with his mom, and he had filed divorce papers on me and sent them to my mom's house. And I was like, what a coward. I'm here living with you, and you can't tell me you're filing for divorce. So I left and left my son there because he was in a school, good school system. And I wasn't stable, and I didn't want to bring him along. I chose to be homeless, I guess, the first time. Um, I could have went to my mom's or somewhere, and I chose to stay out on the streets and drink and and just flap on somebody's couch and work for a little bit to get money to drink some more. And I went through job after job after job. I had good jobs that I would call off because I was hungover. I finally, um, I guess, finally sobered up. I'd sober up for some months at a time and do good. And I just went back to old people, places, and things. And I got kicked out of that apartment that I had, um... And that's how I was really homeless. I didn't have nowhere to go. I um, actually was pulling a suitcase down the sidewalk, going from one friend's house to another friend's house to a staircase in an apartment complex because it was cold out then. And I had heard about Gabriel's Horn. They're a homeless shelter um, that helped people, women and children. I had to do something because it was so cold. I don't know if it's hard to ask for help. I just didn't know if I knew how at that time. Because I was so far gone. Lost everything. I was helpless. I didn't know where to go. What to do. What What do you do when you have nowhere to go? When you know you're not welcome on your friend's couch, but she lets you stay there anyways. Then you go to the bar to go shack up on somebody else's couch because you don't have nowhere to go. And then the next day you go get your suitcase from your friend's. And then you go to that person's house and um, you stay there and depending on how they are, if they're trying to have sexual relationship or something because you stayed on their couch, you know, it's just, I didn't want that. I didn't want to live like that. The fun was over. It wasn't fun anymore. Only you can change yourself. Nobody, you can't change for nobody. I couldn't change for my son and I didn't. I had to do it for myself and that's the only way unless you're going to end up homeless with nothing it'll take you quick how does she describe addiction and what it feels like to live with it um okay so i think that uh what 
one of the things that stood out to me is this sense of the way it has a hold on you. Like it, it's almost like it takes over your will and asserts its own, which I, hmm, I don't know if like I'm like I'm completely comfortable with that being the way that she fully talks about it because I, I I think we start to get a sense that she later takes responsibility for it, but it definitely feels like when you're in the thick of it, the choice kind of it goes it goes out the door like the the only choice you have is to listen to the need to get to cloud nine or escape your troubles and you turn to the thing that's helped you do that in the past so i think at, at least in one sense it's that that strong craving um that's like something you cannot resist um you know she says to her mom like, you just don't understand it's not about just stopping. Uh, the, although she looks like she tries, like off and on, we hear her trying to sober up. Um, so I, I think that maybe is another piece of addiction is like trying to get your will back from whatever it is that is your uh, source of addiction. But that if you don't fundamentally address it, it you go back to old people, places and things and fall back into the habit again. Um, does that capture everything that you were noticing or are there other features of the addiction that stand out to you? Yeah, no, I mean, I think the thing that grabbed me the most was this sort of like binary experience. Like her mom is, you know, seeing her turn to, you know, addiction. And it's just like, well, why can't you just stop? You know, it's just, it feels so easy for her mom to just say, well, just don't do it anymore. And I think like we understand from her, like, it's just, it's not as simple as that. And I think it almost becomes harder to, to stop because I think like you're already turning to it when things are, mm. when things are tough. Like yeah, we don't, yeah. we don't know why she ended like why, why it started or like how it started. But I think like you, there's more pressure that becomes down the line, right? Like her mom saying, well, you should probably stop doing this. And then that probably doesn't make you feel very awesome to have people around you <laughs> saying you need to stop doing this thing that you're doing. And so you feel the, the pressure of that. So that's almost like one more reason to turn to it. Right. So yeah. it becomes like even harder to say like, yeah, to just cancel it out because it just, feels like an overwhelming thing. I mean, that's the sense that I'm getting from her. But yeah, but I think it's just this this back and forth between her mom, who's this outsider not experiencing it, and it seems so easy, and her, you know, saying it's it's really not that easy. It's something that's, you know, like you said, has like a hold on her. Yeah, I think that um, the way this story ends, the fun was over. It wasn't fun anymore. Um, that sounds to me like how this sort of started for her. She talks about meeting the person who became her ex in a bar and they drink for two years straight. She talks about going bowling, staying out till two or three in the morning. I get this sense that um, it was that like the craving initially had this like big pleasure component, like the social uh, dynamic to it that was really engaging. And so I think. You're right. It's interesting because if the addiction takes hold at that point, um, you can justify it pretty easily too. like, I mean, why shouldn't I want to go out after a hard day at work and have fun? And especially if like my boyfriend is also interested in doing that and that's how we met and how we're connected. So um, it seems like there's a <clears throat> maybe the mother also 
like connects drinking to like her daughter having fun. And when the mother sees the fun is no longer there. Cause like, I, I don't know. Um, it doesn't sound like the mother ends up with the son. It might be the ex's mom. Uh, but there's something about, you know, that I'm assuming at least that her own mother, when she's a grandmother, like has deep concerns for her grandchild. And so if it's like, you, you need to let go of fun because you need to be responsible now. You're a parent now. And you don't necessarily see like how addiction functions underneath that. Then you think like, okay, like it's time to grow up. So just stop and like do this new thing. How do you see it, the addiction impacting her relationship with the boyfriend that becomes her husband that becomes her ex-husband. <laughs> yeah. So I think like, well, like you said, I think it's this, like it's the drinking becomes this like social part of her social life. Right. So she meets her then husband at the time. And then we find out like once they decide to get sober together, I think, or when she gets sober, she says, you know, they go out to eat and they don't even say a word to each other. They don't even have a conversation because she says they have nothing in common. So, I mean, and I think that's another tally, right, for the to give into the craving, right? Because it's just like, this is another reason that, I don't know, life kind of sucks more, like, when I don't <laughs> give into it, right? Because it's like, I don't even know this person yeah, anymore. Like, yeah, this yeah. person that's like my husband, like... It's like this was the connection that we had through through drinking, and and now that we, we've kind of removed that, it's like who even is this person? Like, it's not an it's not an integral role in their relationship. So I think they find like through sobriety that it's there's a there's a big chunk of the pie missing in the relationship. Yeah. Um, if you're just tuning in now, you're listening to WVLP, and this is Listen Up Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schuette, and Willa Walsh. We're talking today about one of the Welcome Project's Invisible Project stories that has to do with um, a woman struggling with addiction and how that leads to homelessness. Um, I mean, I guess I find it a little... It's so outside the realm of my experience to sort of wake up and not know the person you, you married. <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious, although we don't really get the ex's story like if he also is suffering addiction or if like when they sobered up in order to have their child like for him that was the end and you know we don't know why he served her divorce papers it doesn't sound like communication between them got any better at least from her side of the story like he wouldn't even like, it sounds to me like she didn't know that he wanted to get a divorce. Is that how you heard it, too? Yeah, like that, you know, the divorce papers just showed up. I don't know. I always thought of divorce as something that's more of like a, a mutual thing. You right. just kind of decide to get this. So it's like, yeah, it's weird that they don't even, they're not able to have this conversation. But also it's just like that they're not on the same page to the same degree. Like, you know, we don't know, how, I guess, how she feels about it. But my sense is that it just, it didn't feel like it was going down that road to like being served divorce papers. So, yeah, so they're just on like totally different planes. I wonder what it felt like to leave her son she doesn't later she says something about heart it being heartbreaking but like as she's telling just like describing the kind of events 
I left my son there because he was in a good school system. And I guess she knew enough to understand she wasn't stable. But it's like the, there's no, like I don't hear anything in her voice as she tells the story that indicates that it was difficult or, or not. So I don't know, did you find that striking or think about that differently? Yeah, I guess I didn't, I didn't think about that. I mean, I suppose you think more, I mean, not only about the school system, right? It feels like maybe there would be a little bit more of a push and pull, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure. It just, it sounds like she knew that was the decision to make. And I almost wonder, like, because we learn in the second story about, you know, how heartbreaking it was. And I wonder if it, if she's now come to terms with it, like when she's telling, telling the story. The story yeah. So it's just like, it might be more easy, like it might be easier for her to just say like, well, this is the reason that I left him there and also I wasn't stable. But I don't know. I mean, I, it would, it would surprise me if she was able to do it that bluntly. But I don't know. But she's also suffering from addiction at right, the same time. Right. So we don't know, like, what hold that that has on yeah. her at the same time. Like, yeah. I think it's hard for us to understand, like, like her mindset here, right? Because, like, I almost feel like the perspective of, of her mom, because I'm not understanding yes. totally, like, how she's feeling. Yeah. So it's almost just like, how are you making these decisions? Like, how is this? And so it's just like, I, th- I think what we know is that it's kind of hard to occupy like whatever these decisions that she's making right now or that she's, you know, having to make. I mean, that was one question that I had for both of us. Like, how do you feel about this storyteller? Like, so the first, like, like two weeks ago when we did our first radio show on stories of homelessness, we had tons of empathy (laughs) for the mother who ended up homeless with her newborn and then toddler. And she was trying so hard in the face of like the conditions of her life. And here we have a, a storyteller whose homelessness, she says, I, ch- I guess I chose homelessness the first time. And so it fits more neatly the stereotype that I know I have of homelessness that like um, in this case, addiction takes your life away from you and like it seems like it's your fault like you let you let this happen and I think I know enough about addiction at least intellectually to understand that it's not exactly that clear cut but I was curious like how are how are how do we feel about this storyteller I I think that's interesting because I, I mean, maybe it's because I'm privy to the second story where she, she goes through the recovery process. Right. So I think it's, it's, you know, it's easier to have empathy when you, when somebody kind of pulls themselves out of it. And I know that sounds terrible, Hmm. but maybe like, I, I think it's really hard when you don't have that moment of like recovery and to like rebuild relationships after that. I mean, I think that's when I can, you know, it's empathy becomes easier for me because I understand yeah. like, you know, I guess I can't totally understand what, you know, addiction feels like, but you know, that it was so hard that you had to leave your family, go through bouts of homelessness and losing jobs. And so I'm just, I don't know. I do feel, I feel very empathetic for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I almost feel myself like, you know, almost like last week where she keeps, she keeps blaming herself a lot for these things. You know, like, like I was going to ask you about that line too. Like I chose homelessness. Yeah, we should figure out what that means. I'm like, yeah, like, does it like for me, I'm like, I don't know if you chose yeah. it. It's like, it's just like, did it feel like the lesser of two evils? Like it's like the other option wasn't awesome either, you know? So 
I what do you see the other option as when you say that? So, well, she said, like, I could go to my mom's house or somewhere else, you know. I mean, I guess theoretically she might have been able to stay where she was with her ex-husband because, you know, she'd be with her son, too, and his grandma. So, I mean, you know, we've talked about it in a couple of previous shows, you know, about, like, the lack of support system. Like, yeah. there's just people not around or not close enough to be able to support you. But I think that's different about her, right? Because yeah. she actually has this support yeah. system or, like, you know somewhat of a support system to I mean, be able to help her. it sounds to me like she wrings them dry. Mm. You know, like she sort of uses them up in a certain way, but that they are there in ways that we haven't heard previously in other stories. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm having trouble with, I don't know. I feel bad for her. Like, I think, I, I do. I feel empathy. I don't know. But how do you feel? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's... <clears throat> It is hard, like you said, because we hear her talking from a place of perspective, not in the moment of her addiction, justifying her choices or lack of choices if you think the addiction itself is making choices for her. Um, but I know that I, like when we get down to the part where she talks about, like, you know you're not welcome on your friend's couch, but she lets you stay there anyways. And I think of, I've, you know, we... We've tried in other stories to like place ourselves in other characters, like in their perspective. And like that friend, I'm just like, I can imagine, you know, if you're if you're really friends, you want to see the storyteller get her stuff together and um, like really pull herself out of this like pattern of um, behavior that's just like taking everything meaningful out of her life. And, um, you just like, you, I'm assuming like, like the mother, there's, there might be this sense of like, well, just stop, like, come on, you can do this. And like, you can only be with somebody saying that for so long before it just really wipes you out yourself. So I think that from that sense, I can see why. Her friend, her mom might like blame her in a way that it's hard for me listening to her story from this perspective of recovery to really do. But I think the storyteller wants to take responsibility, like from the perspective of recovery. And so I'm not sure that she would be comfortable with us using or me using the term blame, but um, I think she wants ownership of the choices she made. It's like a way of facing the addiction is to take responsibility for something you maybe didn't have total control over. So I think that when she says, um, you know, I guess I chose homeless, I chose to be homeless, I guess the first time, I think that I guess the first time is this kind of like, I'm, I wasn't in total control, but I was unwilling to stop. So that was my choice. Um, so I think that's, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's how I would kind of get around that or thinking about my attitude towards her. Um, you're listening to WVLP. This is Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh with Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. And we're talking about our first story today of the storyteller's experience of addiction and homelessness. I don't know, what are the costs of this kind of homelessness? Um, by kind, I think I mean that's addiction-driven. Mm -mm. Well, I think that 
it's it's harder on the people around you. So like, right, so she does have this support system of like friends and like mom, but you know, it's like, especially if the people around you are placing blame on you. And we don't know the, the interactions that happen between her and, you know, her friend and her mom, but you know, it's like, I can imagine that like your friend having, you know, alcoholism you know, is not an easy thing for you either yeah because it's like especially if you're constantly turning to that i mean like that relationship can't be like super fun i you know it's just like i can imagine like you know arguments or like whatever that happens so it's just like i think it it makes it harder on the people around you to like you know maybe give you a place to stay or you know give you the benefit of the doubt day after day after day after you know it just feels like something that you know maybe her friend would feel that she's done onto herself is impacting you know her her friend it's it's a little bit it's it's hard it makes it more complicated it doesn't make it as easy to to empathize right with that piece of addiction because it feels like we can use that to blame her so i think it i don't know so it it's it's like a more somber tone i think than than the other stories that that we've talked about because it's like you know it's there's that the addiction part that's just so as she bounces around from place to place you know from the other storytellers we've talked about they were talking about well we went to the library we went to the park we went to the walmart parking lot and you're like man they're just like bouncing around everywhere that's got to be awful and you know with her it almost i can imagine somebody hearing this and thinking addiction well she's bouncing around well that's her fault because she has this addiction piece attached to it so it's like well if she didn't have that maybe she wouldn't bounce around as much but we know from other stories that that <laughs> isn't necessarily true. So I don't know. I think I think it makes it harder for for others around you, especially. Yeah, I think that something that's special to addiction is um, that she gets jobs and keeps, but can't keep them. And oftentimes she says it's because you know she has to call in because she's hungover, and then they you know probably fire her. But then she'd sober up and she, for some months at a time and do good. And I would think that piece of it would be really hard for your support system folk because it's like, how many, it's like crying wolf, right? Like how many times have you watched someone get sober, look like they're doing good and then fall back into drinking? Like that erosion of trust that happens over time. Um I just, I feel like that's a part of the experience of homelessness here that would be different. Like with the the mom who had her young son and then like her aunt kicked her out of the aunt's house and sent her to the shelter because she wanted her to take personal responsibility. Like her support system wasn't really supporting her, at least the way it sounded from her perspective. But here, like, your support system would probably want to support you, but you have diminished their capacity for doing that because, like, where's how are they going to ever trust that you're going to make good this time? Where's the evidence that would ever be big enough for that? I think think I'm just really struck, too, with how she doesn't really talk about her son at this point in her life. And I, I... I think we can't know that exactly. We'll hear a little bit about her relationship to her son in the second story, but I wonder about that, like the absence of him from her mind. 
And whether that was like a self-protection, uh, I don't want to care about someone I can't care for, or if it was protection for her son, like the best thing I can do for him is to not be in his life. And so it was a kind of inverted <laughs> act of love. Um, but that strikes me as something that's probably particular to this kind of homelessness too, like how maybe the storyteller can't even trust herself, you know, to be in relationship with other people. Mm. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say from this story or ask about this story? Um, well, there was one last thing, which at the end she talks about, like, she says, like, I don't know if it's hard to ask for help. Mm. I just didn't know, like, how to ask for help at that time. And so I was wondering, like, you know, like, do we know how to ask for help? Like, not just our storyteller, but just, like, in general. Like, I mean, I wonder, like, once you get to this predicament that she's in, like, how do you, are we, are we really well-versed in asking for help? And, like, do we have the resources? Because it's, like, before I started, like, working on the Welcome Project, it's, like, I didn't know about Gabriel's Horn. I didn't mm. know about homeless shelters yeah. in Valparaiso. And it's, like, because I didn't need to. I had the privilege right. of not knowing. But if I find myself in that situation, I can imagine it's, like, you know, being on the side of the road and, like, looking up a video on how to change a tire because it's like I don't I don't know how to fix the situation right. you know so it's just like you don't have the it's like what do I do and so I wonder like maybe it's just to leave it at that but you know like this idea of just it's hard to ask for help or you don't know how to ask for help that stood out to me yeah and then she had includes the line I was helpless I didn't know where to go what to do and I, I'm struck by that, and I don't know how to, um, like, quite articulate, like, it's hard to ask for help. If you're helpless, it seems like it would be a natural thing to do. But I feel like there's something about the experience of helplessness itself that has left you bereft of, I don't know, like, an avenue or vocabulary. Or maybe it's the fact that the relationships have been so like thinned out over time that like to, to ask for help, like to overcome that hurdle just becomes too impossible to do. But maybe we can return to that idea of help and helplessness as we get to the second story. Um, I want to remind everybody that this is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. You're here with Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh. Today on Listen Up, we're discussing a story from our Invisible Project initiative. So we just heard the first part of our storyteller's experience of how she ended up homeless, and now we're going to hear the second part of her story in which she talks about getting sober and back on her feet. So this one is called Time to Change. At first, I didn't want nobody to know where I lived because they were like, we'll give you a ride home, we'll give you a ride home. You know, I'm like, I just live right down the street. I can walk. And then the one girl I worked with said, I used to live there. And I'm like, no way. And then I was I didn't care no more because, you know what, people need help. And that's why they're there. And if you want to look down on me, then go ahead. I was in Gabriel's Horn. It was May 2010. They're a homeless shelter that helped women and children. When I was there, of course, I was scared, nervous. And a couple girls went to AA, and I wanted to go to AA. I wasn't new in AA because I've been to AA numerous times. But I really wanted it this time. I hit rock bottom. I um, actually was pulling a suitcase down the sidewalk, going from one friend's house to another friend's house, 
to a staircase in an apartment complex because it was cold out then. The heartache that I gave my family, not knowing where I was, if I was dead, if I was alive. You know, my son um, would call. I remember calling, leaving messages. Mom, I want you to come over. I want to see you. And, oh, yeah, I'll be there and never come. You know, how heartbreaking is it? It was time to change. I was only there a week, and I got a job. I was I'm persistent. I could get a job. I just can't keep a job. And um, so it was right. It was walking distance. It was a restaurant. And that's where I met my husband, actually. Um, <laughs> I remember he was a cook and he would mess with me. And I'm like, you're too young. Leave me alone. And he just kept going on and on. And um, he would walk me home to Gabriel's Horn because he lived not too far. Or he would pick me up with roses um, or just a flower. I was just glowing. It was great. And everybody at Gabriel's Horn loved him. When I'd have my son, he would play ball. or We'd all play ball or hacky sack. It's 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. It was, it was great. I have a great relationship with my son. I asked him when I got sober five years ago for forgiveness. And uh, we talked. And he forgave me. And I cried. Um, he thought I didn't care about him or didn't want him. Why would I always leave him? Um, he didn't understand that. And I explained to him that I had a problem. So actually when he seen the confidence that I would be there for him when I said so in the trust that he gained back, our relationship is fabulous today. He wants to come and see me as much as he can. And I get him as much as I can. I have I have not missed a visit since. I had him over last weekend and just lie, laying there with him. You know, he's 14. He don't really want to snuggle anymore, and I miss that. And I kind of started crying, had tears, because i that was my fault that I wasn't there at some, some of those times to snuggle with him or to tuck him in at night. Yeah. yeah I regret some stuff. I regret that. I It's my fault that I let that happen. But I'm glad I'm not like that today. So there, we're hearing a little bit of the emotion that I felt like I wanted to hear some of in the first story, um, which is not to say that she should, as a storyteller, have had emotion in the first story. But I think it speaks a lot to the point of recovery um, that as she really thinks about reconnecting with her son there at the end, that she gets choked up. Um, I wasn't necessarily where I wanted to start <laughs> discussing this story, but it just really struck me. Um, can you tell why at the beginning the storyteller doesn't want people to know where she lives? Because it's a little bit out of context for until you get later in the story. So why doesn't she want people to know where she lives? Yeah, so, well, I'm assuming she's probably feels bad about where she lives or she feels a sense of like shame of where she lives. Um, because she, you know, she doesn't want people to know where she's living. So that would make sense to me. But I, and that's what, the shelter, right? I yeah. Mean, she's yeah. talking about Gabriel's horn there, right? Okay. Yeah. And so like, so I'm wondering like, you know, so if people go there, then they would assume something about her. So that's probably why she didn't want to. But I think it's interesting that she goes through this sort of like flip at the beginning there too. Like, I'm wondering like how she got to this point of like, at first I didn't want anybody to know where I lived. Mm. And, you know, like, people were trying to give her a ride home, but then she goes into, like, well, no way, I don't care anymore because, you know what, people need help. Like, I'm wondering, like, do you get a sense of, like, how she gets from, like, you know, like, I don't want anybody to know to, like, I don't care anymore, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, the one piece that she gives us is that 
she's working with somebody that was like, hey, I used to live at the shelter too. So I, I mean, over and over again, we hear in all of our Welcome Project stories how something happens when you have an experience that you realize is shared by somebody else. So I think it's the sense of it's no, when she learns that a coworker also lived in the shelter at some point, that she doesn't feel isolated by that fact anymore. Like it's a, it's a point of connection now for her instead of a point of isolation. And that seems to open her eyes to like, and I'm, I'm assuming it sounds like the coworker doesn't live there anymore. So then there's also this sense of like, this is a starting point, not a finishing point. And, um, the other thing I guess I'm assuming is that maybe by that point she'd started going back to AA, but we don't really know for sure, but I would think that would be another resource that might help her move from like shame to acceptance of, or even it's even more than acceptance. It's more like kind of braggadocio, like I don't care anymore. Like people need help. And um, that's like normal and okay. And if I am a, an image of needing help, someone who's receiving help, then so be it. Which is maybe kind of an interesting take on the last bit of the story when she's like, I didn't know how to ask for help. So maybe part of what's happening here is she's having realizations about, I mean, she's already gotten the help or started to get the help, but maybe she's learning something about receiving that she hadn't seen before. Yeah, maybe like, I don't know if it's like acceptance, but I don't know, like I almost wonder like AA2 might be a hard thing to start if you're not like ready to enter into that sort of thing. You know, it's like kind of like, a, yeah, well, I guess this is the predicament that I am in and I'm gonna do something about it. And so I think like maybe before you get to a place like Gabriel's Horn, you don't necessarily, I don't know, I guess she doesn't want other people to know that she's there because that, I think that's a form of acceptance, right? Like I needed help and now yeah. I've got help. And so, I don't know, that's just the way I was thinking about it. But I wonder too, like, she, so she, she's having this, this struggle, right? This individual struggle where she's trying to figure out, you know, like, you know, she's at the homeless shelter, she gets a job, but something that surprised me in this story is that she talks about like her family like not knowing where she was or like if she was dead or alive. And I don't know, that that, that, that like kind of stood out to me because I think in our other stories that we had talked about, it's kind of like, you know, our storytellers were kind of on their own, right? There wasn't really much of a support system. You know, there wasn't like this outside force, like caring for you and wondering where you are. But we have that with our storyteller. Like she has a support system out there that we know isn't super reliable or, you know, she feels like she's wrung dry, like she can't count on them as much. But still there's people out there that are wondering like, where is she? Is she okay? And I don't know, like, I wonder like, how do you see this situation being different from maybe some of our previous storytellers? And like, what does that mean for her experience? Well, I think I would go back on something you said, and I'm not sure that she couldn't rely on her, her support system in the sense of feeling like she'd wrung them dry. I I actually think there's something else going on that has to do with like, um, she doesn't there's some part of her that understands if she reaches out and reconnects with family or doesn't abuse a friendship that she has to give up the addiction 
Like I, I sense that in, in her. And so I think she's, she's rejecting the support system. So I think the not knowing if I was dead or if I was alive, that's very intentional on her part. Maybe not conscious, but very much like I'm in this drinking to and working to drink. And that's what I'm, that's what's, that's where my attention is. That's where my desire is. That's where my craving is. And so I am just cutting myself off except for people who will get me through a night, you know, like we didn't talk about this with the previous story, but I think one of the hardest things for me to hear for her is that sexual favors become like a form of like payment for a, a shelter for the night. That just feels really difficult um, to imagine being that vulnerable and like what it would mean to make yourself that vulnerable um, just to keep a lifestyle going. So I'm now I'm leading us away from your actual question, but I, I just do think that um, she's teaching us something really profound about the inside of addiction, you know, like mm -hmm. what it's like to be in that pattern. Uh, and I just, yeah, that's something that's made her story of homelessness different than other storytellers that we've already, that we've already heard from. I'm wondering about rock bottom and that's a term that AA uses a lot or it's an AA term. Um, but what do you think it means for the storyteller and what does it allow her to do? I, when I think of rock bottom, like that makes me think that like there are no other options or it's like, it's just getting worse from here. Like it's not getting better. So like, I think like, so what you were talking about, you know, like exchanging sexual favors and like being able to stay on couches and things like, it seems like maybe even that part was doable enough for her. So we, you know, we can assume that it got even worse after that point. And so there must be a time to where you just kind of realize like this, I can't get out of this anymore. Like this is just, I can't live like this. I mean, she says in the other story, right? Like this wasn't fun anymore, but I think it got even worse after that. Like not yeah. that this isn't fun anymore, but this is like almost too hard to live with anymore. Yeah. So I think, I wonder if she had to get to that point to understand that it's like she needed a turning point. She needed to figure out how to get her way out of it because addiction wasn't helping anymore. Like going to that place that she described in the other story, you know, like going to the cloud nine, you know, just being able to forget about things for a little while, like that wasn't even serving her anymore. It's like that. I think it's, it got to a point to where even the addiction wouldn't even give her what she needed to keep going. So I think when she hit that, yeah. It also makes me aware that that's a, that's a metaphor for addiction then like that it must be a, f a sense of falling, right? Like that you just are kind of, I don't know, now I'm picturing somebody like <laughs> like going down this like dark tunnel and just like their hands and arms flailing because they have no sense of like anything around them. There's no, there's no options or I don't know, not, that's not the right way to say it, but like there's nothing to hold on to. And then if I'm just imagining now, like somebody's hitting the bottom and how like shocking that would be like it would be she says um when she gets to Gabriel's horn I was scared and nervous um and I and I'm wondering about that like with the hitting the bottom like that sense of if you've been in free fall 
and suddenly like there's this impact um that's so it would be very jarring and now you have to like pick yourself up and and figure out how do you get out of the hole that you landed in that would be i i wouldn't even i would think i would use the word terrifying <laughs> as opposed to scared and nervous but um yeah yeah so do you see opportunities that it gives her to have had that land landing like what that allows her to do and and like maybe who helps her yeah i think so so well we know that she's got well there's a couple of girls that we can assume probably were at the shelter with her so i think there's this another another aspect of this support system right so we get it in the first bit of her story where somebody else tells her that yeah i used to live in the shelter and she feels a little bit better and so once she gets to the shelter you know there's a couple of people there who also want to go to aa so I think it's, I don't know, I, I wonder if like having a, like a small sense of community there with other people yeah. who's going, who are going through this makes it easier too. Because like you said, like trying to like figure your way out. I think it's maybe easier if you see other people around you who've just also, you know, maybe hit a similar spot. And so I think that's, that's you know, what, what helped her. And then I think her being at rock bottom is what what motivated her to actually go to AA. Because she said she wasn't new in AA, right? Yeah. Like she had done this beforehand. Yeah. So it's like this point, this rock bottom point is really what she needed in order to, to follow through with it. Um, you're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio on WVLP with Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh. And we're talking about how the storyteller for today um, found her way to the bottom of addiction and then mounted a recovery and how that's related to getting her home, her home back, uh, which I think we could talk about in terms of family and stuff too. Um, I was really struck by say, her, the way she said, I, I really wanted AA this time. And I think that's a feature that I've heard people talk about with rock bottom too. Um, but I think you're right that the community that's there, like, if you go to AA, sometimes you're required to go to AA, like say if you get a DUI or something like that. So you might be in a group with people who actually don't want to be there, but like are required to be there. Or maybe you're some part of you wants to be there, but you're not fully committed to the program yet. Um, so I think there could be, it, it could be a really kind of fragile community depending. Um, but the fact that she really wanted it this time I think there's a, a sense of determination in her that we don't really hear her talking about when she's, even when she's having fun, being the like playful drunk who stays at the bowling alley till two or three in the morning. It doesn't ever feel like it's this determination. It's just like, this is what, this is what I'm, this is how my life is unfolding. And here we finally, it finally sounds like her own desire takes over the craving that the addiction has has had on her. Um, but I'm curious then beyond AA, unless you have more thoughts on that, like who else is a part of her recovery? Like who else helps her? Yeah, so we we get a little bit more information about her husband now, um, where they met at the restaurant that she started working at. And I think that's like another person to her support system, right? Yeah. Like someone else in her corner. Cause we learned that the other people who were supposedly in her corner probably are placing a lot of blame onto her. So it's probably really nice to have somebody 
you fresh. Know, fresh in your <laughs> corner, yeah, exactly. And so, and, and then we learn from there that she, you know, gets a little more stable and she meets her husband. And then she also starts to develop her relationship with her son, which, you know, like you said, up until this point, like we didn't, it was like one line and then we didn't really hear about her son again. So, but, but in this story, we, we hear a little bit more about how, I don't know, I guess there's like forgiveness. I don't know. How would you describe her relationship with her son now? Yeah, I mean, from the perspective of being interviewed for the initiative, um, it sounds like something she cherishes very deeply and like the connection that they have. I mean, I she talks about regret at the end, so I think we could get back to that too. Um, but I think that there's a sense of strength in this relationship because it had gone through this period of trial, this period of trauma. I mean, like, again, I don't want to say like they're better for it because like who would ever wish that kind of trauma on a child for sure, let alone an adult. Um, but I, yeah, I, I guess I'd, I'd like to know more about forgiveness and what that might mean because that seems to be the thing that has allowed the full recovery of their relationship. Um, and she says she asked for it and he forgave me, but I kind of wonder, like, do we have any more clues about, like, I don't think forgiveness happens in a moment, right? So even if it's said, like, I bet it has to be lived into in some sense. And so do you see any other cues here about how forgiveness was possible for the, on the son's part? Yeah, well, I think she said, like, so she hadn't missed any visits with him after she got sober um, and that he wants to come there as much as he can. So it's like there, there's this desire for, like, a, you know, a, a rejuvenated relationship between them. So I think we, we, we get to know a little bit about, you know, how their relationship especially like with her husband too right they're like playing hacky sack until one or two in the morning so it's just yeah. like it feels more more positive so it feels like forgiveness would be on the up and up but yeah i was also suspicious <laughs> of that line where you know that she said that he he forgave her um because i feel like that would be something that's so hard to do yeah yeah i think that i think there is something in he has a chance to tell her what he was experiencing, right? Like I, that I didn't care about him, that I didn't want him. And why would I always leave him? So that feels like a piece of it too. His ability to have a chance to say, this is, this is how hurtful this was. And for her not to walk away from, from that. And then I, I'm curious about the explanation. You know, I explained to him that I had a problem. I mean, she doesn't do that for us in the two stories. Like, she gives us a big, full picture of addiction, but doesn't necessarily talk about, like, the science behind it and, like, how um, some people at least think of addiction as an illness, like diabetes, where you you really, once you trigger it, like, it's it's not something that you have full control over. So I wonder, like, if he found some, sus you know, like, some... Some, some support in that too, like that this wasn't personal. She wasn't rejecting me 
exactly. It's like kind of this addiction was in the way between us. Um, but I, I do, I'm guessing that the trust that he gained back, that sounds like it was a process for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering how like easy that would be to, to hear, you know, especially like, because I think we get to understand, like you said, like this fuller picture of her addiction. But I, I would almost wonder, like, you know, wouldn't her son have this sort of same mindset as, say, her mom? Like, you know, it, it would be hard to understand, like, to be able to understand, like, the, the, the breadth of the addiction yeah. has on her, like the hold it has on her. So I don't know, like, I, I, I would just assume that it would be so much harder for him to accept the explanation that it was because she had a problem and not you know, wonder like, well, couldn't you stop that problem? You know, like her mom, cause he's not experiencing that himself. So it would be really hard to understand like how much of a hold that really had. So, so yeah, so I would totally agree that it, it felt like forgiveness would definitely be more of a process because it, I, I can't imagine it would be very satisfying to hear like, well, I had alcoholism. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of guessing by the numbers she gives us if, if he's 14, at the time that she's being interviewed and she had been sober for five years. So maybe the first conversations they're having are when he's like 11, 12. Um, and I, maybe there's just something about kids having bigger hearts, you know, cause they want, like, I would imagine he would want the reconnection so deeply. Um, just like kind of at this, like, fundamental level that he might um, have more, I don't want to say resilience, but be better, be ready more quickly once he had confidence in her to then just like open his heart to the reconnection again so they can have this fabulous relationship today. Yeah. Well, I would think like, actually, I would say like maybe more resilience to the trauma. Like mm, it wouldn't yeah. be, I mean, I, I would be really interested to actually hear what he would say about it now Yeah. because I would almost wonder like, I, I mean, my expectation with that would be that, you know, maybe his, it would sour like his experience of it over time. Like, because like here, I think, you know, when he is like 11 or 12, I think it would be really hard to be cognizant of that pain. And so when somebody says, you know, especially a parent that you would really want to hear, like, I'm sorry from, it, it's, you know, maybe the I'm sorry is enough at, at 11, 14, but I wonder if the, if the I'm sorry is still enough at like 18 or 20. Yeah, five years out. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> um, what do you think the role of regret is, if there is one? Yeah, I mean, I guess we don't know the role of it, per se, but, you know, she says that she does have regrets and that she, you know, feels like what she does regret is her fault. So I would say that maybe that would be motivation not to fall back into yeah. previous patterns, right? Because she said, you know, I did old things, old friends fall back into the same, you know, going back into, like, bouts of sobriety and addiction. And so I would say that, you know, given how far she's come and her ability to rekindle this relationship with her son and, you know, acknowledge that she regrets that time in her life. Yeah. I think that's a huge thing to say, like, I don't want to regret any more years of my life. So I think it, I think it, 
it helps her keep her mind on what's really important and what yes. is helpful for her. And I think she would have a harder time falling back into addiction in the future. That's my sense of how regret plays. Yeah, but- I think that's really well put. Um, it's like what she couldn't allow herself to feel before. Now she's letting herself feel in full the how tender it is to like um you know lay there with your child and snuggle and it sounds like she had brief glimpses of that when they reconnected and now at 14 he's like all like oh mom you know um but she wouldn't allow herself to even want that i felt like when she was lost to the addiction and so now the regret enables her to actually feel what she missed out on. And that would be, like you said, motivation to stay sober so you don't miss out on on more. And it's like this clarity about what's valuable to you, mm-hmm. like what's really valuable to you. So I'm guessing as an alcoholic, alcohol might still look attractive at some points, but if you really understand what's valuable to you in sobriety and you have a support system you have your son, you have a husband that makes you glow. I hope he still does that. Um, and you have AA, like a program that can like keep you on track to you. Like uh, that then what's attractive is not as important as what's valuable. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you agree with her when she says that it's her fault that she let it happen. Yeah, we've kind of been talking about that this past hour. <laughs> um, I mean, it is it is her fault that she wasn't with him when he wanted to snuggle. In the sense that she, to the extent that she was making choices, uh, she chose like, I, I wanted to st- I wanted to keep drinking and I w- was gonna just do what I needed to do to allow that to happen um, and I I think maybe I said some version of this before but I feel like what's really important for her is that she sees it as her fault so that she can take responsibility for it and that seems key in sobriety as well like you really just have to have some agency back in your life and see addiction as something that's a danger to that so it becomes another reason to stay sober but did you have a final thought on fault responsibility (laughs) as we wrap up today yeah i don't know i mean i think alcoholism can can really can really get a grip on you but I think you're right in that I think it's what's important is that she sees it as her fault and I think that would make it easier for her support system to jump in there when she's taken that level of of sort of ownership over it so I think ultimately I think it I think it works really well in her situation as that continued motivation to to stay on that track yeah well that's it for it today thanks for listening And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Organic Juice Cafe at rootsjuicecafe.com. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. 
And would you like to hear some more Welcome Project stories like you heard today? You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts.